I guess one thing I should have left up here is that uh, there's a sense of fate that the gods have ordained certain outcomes. In other words, Rome, from its very earliest phases, was destined to rule the world. This is what the gods had decided. And not just the gods, um, because the gods sometimes squabble among themselves. Zeus, the number one, his will is fate. So he's siding with the, Tro with the Trojans, and that means with the uh, uh, guys who will become the Latins. And uh, he supports Aeneas. And even though he allowed Troy to be destroyed, he's in some ways compensated by giving them back the city of Rome. All right, what did you think when you read this? How did it compare to Homer for you? Yeah? Um, I think it was interesting, I mean, with all the parallels to Homer himself, but instead of opening with, like, calling on the muse, he opened with, like, himself, like, I say. It was really interesting to have the dichotomy between Okay, very nice. Armor Verunke, I sing of God, uh, of uh, men, in men in arms, yes, men in arms. And uh, that is the great Roman theme. In other words, Rome was first a republic, and then when it got too big to, for republican institutions to survive, it became an empire. This is being written, Virgil is writing this, at exactly the time that Augustus has destroyed all his enemies and established the end of the Roman Republic and makes himself the first Roman emperor. So here we are on the tra at the transition point between Republic and Empire. Right. And what, the, what you really need when you make a tremendous political uh, transformation like that is a way of covering it up. All right. So Augustus whose real name was Octavian, he was the nephew of Caesar, uh, who had been assassinated, um, what he's looking for is legitimacy and a way of keeping the people quiet and happy. Now part of that comes from him trying to go through the motions and hold on to some of the forms and the terms that have been used in the Republic. The idea was to obscure the fact that he had just ended the Roman Republic, that it was over and that in fact those old institutions are going to be hollowed out and not amount to anything. And in fact, all the power is going to end up in the hands of one man, the emperor. All right. He'll erode the power of the Senate, so they end up being a rubber stamp. And it turns out that Rome needs not only a past, and a connection to the past, to Greece and to its earlier Republican traditions, it also needs a vision of the future. Enter Virgil, right? Rome has been created to rule the world forever. That's the good news that comes in at the end. And when, in book seven, when he goes and visits his dad Anchises, he sees all the heroes of Roman history, kind of prayed before, but the greatest of them, is Augustus. <laughs> now, again, this guy is nobody's fool. Um, he'd like a villa and some slaves and a big sack of money, which he gets, all right, by sucking up to Augustus. I mean, there's plenty of money, and this is actually really useful. This is propaganda that legitimizes Augustus. <clears throat> now, things get curiouser and curiouser. Virgil himself is an Epicurean. When we talked about Lucretius last time, I can kind of see it. It seems to be um, the kind of thing that would be attractive to poets, all right? Um, serious men of affairs, they may have to be stoical because they don't have time to uh, mess around with Dido, all right? But um, Virgil himself is living large. He's having a good time and he likes luxury, and he is uh, feted in the elite circles of Rome. Uh, 
eventually he runs into problems with the emperor and gets exiled and has various kinds of difficulties. But the point is that Virgil um, is a very strange person to write this particular epic because there's no trace of Epicureanism. In other words, unlike Lucretius, who's at pains to say, look, the only good thing is pleasure, don't be stupid. Here it says, no, no, no. If our Aeneas were a European, were an Epicurean, we would never have gotten him to leave Crete. Certainly he's not going to leave Dido. All right. But he's got a job to do. Any of you know the movie The Blues Brothers? Okay. Well, he's on a mission from God. Right? You see how that works? Uh, the gods have told him what he got to do, and he's like, ah, damn, I've got to leave. When you say he's an Epicurean, do you mean he lived an Epicurean lifestyle? Yeah. Or that he actually was involved in Epicurean philosophy? Um, he adopted and, and affirmed the Epicurean philosophy. Okay. And he lived, you know, let's have some nice pleasures. I mean, I can see how poets or musicians might find that intrinsically attractive. Harder for Roman, for Roman politicians to do, unless they want to be the depraved and debauched kind. And, of course, there's no shortage of so essentially this whole time is he like sucking up to the Roman people saying like saying like oh the gods the gods the gods did this the gods did this but he doesn't actually believe it probably not in other words he's an opera look he's not stupid yeah all right and the best educated Romans were educated in the Greek tradition they've already gotten pre-socratic physics now it's post-socratic physics all right and uh, he uh, he's willing to publicly affirm all the things that Rome right. affirmed what he believes in private, you know, work it out yourself. Right. You know? He says in the first page uh, about a pair, when he's talking about her rage, he says, can such resentment hold the minds of gods? There we go. That's very nicely done. Exactly. So what we have here is uh, a chameleon. Right. Uh, he's an Epicurean, but he knows that it's a hard sell with those Epicurean virtues where you sit around getting ready to be dead. Right, absorbing tiny pleasures, living like a sponge, essentially. All right, I mean, that, that may not be a great life for a human being, but for lesser animals, when sitting there enjoying, you know, your sponginess, I mean, that's got to be tremendous. Uh, it's not heroic, or it's hard to make that heroic. If you want to be heroic, you've got to sacrifice. You have to endure pain. You have to undergo ordeals, and these ordeals purify you. you know, it's one of the things that holds all of epics together. There's the journey motif. It starts with dissatisfaction with life, goes on a journey, uh, undergoes ordeals that purify them, and at the end, come back with some new understanding of, of the world and themselves. Right? Works for Gilgamesh, but it works for Homer. It also works for uh, Rome or Aeneas. Okay, so uh, here we have an Epicurean writing what certainly looks to me like a Stoic epic. Um, he's going to base his epic on the Homeric tradition, but he's going to add something that Homer didn't think of. And this is, look, it's, it's uh, conspicuous because there's so few things that he adds that Homer didn't think of. Um, this new idea is pietas, a new virtue, piety, showing respect to the gods. Look, you Remember when uh, Agamemnon stole the daughter of the priest of Apollo and as a result got a retribution from Apollo in the form of an epidemic? And that's how the Iliad begins. All right. Um, the Romans don't go for uh, human contests with God. Right? They know that's foolish. They know that's hubris. The Greeks say, well, let's see how far we can push with this. Romans say, you're going to get yourself killed like that. All right? So instead of pushing the envelope as far as it can go, the Romans try and stay within plausible boundaries. And that's where piety comes in. Show some respect, you nitwit. All right? There's no sense uh, offering to fight the gods. There's no sense in believing what uh, Prometheus believes. In short, I hate all gods. The Romans say, look, we like the gods, particularly because they sarred with us. We got them on our side. They've 
uh, organize the world so that Rome will rule everything. So we like the gods. The gods like us. It's all cool. All right. That Greek hubris. No, the Romans look at that and said that's dysfunctional. That's going to get you killed, and that's going to make a mess of society. Which remember the Romans not only have Greek literature and Greek philosophy, they also have Greek history. They've read Thucydides. They well, what we're not going to do is this. So, show some respect, a decent regard for traditional morals, and that involves things like filial piety. Respect your parents. Protect your parents. All right? Uh, that would you, remember that in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and also in uh, um, the, the Aeneid as well, um, you, who you are is dependent upon your lineage. Remember when the soldiers get together and they say, who are you, who are you, who are you descended from? Um, that's your identity. They don't have passports back then. I am X son of Y, yeah. So do you, do you think that this uh, hiatus is part of the reason why Rome doesn't do much that's new? That's right, that's a big, well, again, you can put it either way. You could say they don't do much new and they have to invent something like pietas, or you can say that pietas comes first. My sense is it's kind of in, um, uh, chicken and egg. yeah, chicken and egg. But uh, the Romans are more concerned with the Greeks about limits. In other words, the Greeks would build a very large structure. Suppose they were doing architecture. See, I wonder if this will stand up or if this will come down <laughs> everybody's head. Well, let's find out. <laughs> Romans said, well, look, let's not. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're going to take our chances with last year's model because it worked. And yeah, we'll innovate, but we're going to innovate very slowly. And we don't want to take any serious risks. Back in the days of Mayor Daly in Chicago, there was a, uh, a slogan that they had for the Chicago machine. It was, don't make no waves, don't back no losers. That's pretty much the Roman outlook, right? Um, you submit to the glory of Rome, and you work, if you're a patrician, for the glory of Rome, right? Um, you don't, it's, it's the highest value to you, right? So you don't try and introduce innovations. That's a really unusual thing in Rome. They, move, they innovate very little and more very slowly, yeah. Is it the similar view as like the polis is like the center? Yeah, well, um, here's the difference. Um, the polis has natural boundaries. It's really not all that big. Mm -hmm. And remember Aristotle's ethics, if you live in a polis, you know everyone else among the elite. You're on a first name basis. That can't happen in Rome. It's too damn big. Okay. Remember that Aristotle says in the politics that you absolutely need a polis in order to have a real political life. And he's writing that at exactly the time that his student, Alexander the Great, is destroying all polises in the world. Right? And it turns out you can still have politics after there aren't any more polises. Okay. So what they're doing is adapting politics and culture to the fact that they are now an empire. It's one of the largest, one of the two largest in the world. The Chinese empire is the only that compares with it. And the Romans have an advantage almost nobody else has. <coughs> it's a lot easier to move things across water than it is across land. Right? Remember that even if you have a paved road, all you're going to have is horses or ox carts on it. It's still going to be moving very slow. But um, it's, it's 20 or 25 times more efficient to move things across water. And to have the Mediterranean right in the center means you can get stuff from North Africa to the Middle East to Southern Europe and beyond. So um, that's a tremendous advantage. It means transportation of goods, but also transportation of ideas. Right. Okay, so we are now at the beginning of the Roman Empire. We have a Stoic epic written by an Epicurean. All right. Um, my sense is the Stoics, who we're going to read a week or two, um, would really like Aeneas. Why? Because, yeah, once in a while he gets carried away by his emotions, but for the most part, he obeys the signs and the warnings of the gods, all right. He doesn't push against the envelope. He takes correction uh, directly. Right? He has dreams, or uh, the gods, goddess, the goddess of Venus talks to him. The point is that Aeneas is a man with a mission, 
and his mission is more important than him or his pleasures. His first natural mission is to take care of his father. We have a natural moral obligation to our parents, and it's very important the circumstances that we see in book one. First of all, like every, like every epic, we start in medias res. In other words, we start in the middle of things. No epic starts at the beginning with the fall of Troy. Instead, you have to start where the kind of the center of pivot is, and then have a flashback, like they did in the Odyssey, to find out what's been, go what's been going on and how we got here. Okay? All right, so Emedius race, and he arrives at Carthage. Carthage is important because Rome was created on the ashes of Carthage. In other words, there are three Punic wars, three wars between uh, Rome and Carthage. <coughs> After the third of these wars, Carthage is completely destroyed, but they came very close, the Carthaginians, under Hannibal, came very close to destroying Rome. All right? So it was a neck-and-neck -neck race between these two, and only one can be the dominant force in the Mediterranean. Is this sort of a Sparta and Athens situation? A little bit, except that the cultures weren't nearly as inverted, weren't nearly as different. All right. The Carthaginian culture is actually kind of frightening. Uh, they had the cult of Moloch, which comes from uh, Phoenicia, the Near East, the Philistines, and that involved child sacrifice. So the, uh, the Carthaginians were a dangerous and frightening group of people. All right. um, they were a mercantile people, and they were coveting territory that the Romans had, and vice versa, places like Sardinia, or Sicily, of coastal areas in, in Spain. Okay. So we begin with the arrival at Carthage. And the reason why is because this is pregnant with so much of previous Roman history. Right? Carthage prospers because it's supported by Juno, who doesn't like Aeneas. Okay, now, Queen Dido. This, for Romans, would have been very anomalous. Here we have a female head of state. Right. There was no such thing in Rome. Right. We have lots of Roman emperors. We don't have any Roman empresses. Right. Women did not generally participate in public life. Now, you have to remember, Octavian has had to fight against his opponents, the the members of the Second Triumvirate for control of Rome to make himself the emperor. And one of the opponents in the Second Triumvirate was Mark Anthony. And Mark Anthony was actually a very capable soldier, very capable military leader, but he hooked up with Cleopatra. Now for the Romans, this is a big moral problem. And it's a problem in uh, getting the support of most Romans. Cleopatra is represented to the Romans as being a foreign seductress. All right? She is from the east, from Egypt, very different culturally from the Roman tradition. She has inherited the position of Pharaoh. She runs Egypt. They, the Romans think that's anomalous. And they think that not only is she running Egypt, but she's gotten to the point where she's running Mark Anthony. Okay. They make a pact. Mark Anthony says, I'm going to play for all the marbles. I'm going to try and take Rome. And when I do, of course, we'll have both Rome and Egypt, and we'll have everything we want, and we'll have a new dynasty, and Rome will go in a very different direction, an Eastern, Oriental direction. All right? So uh, Anthony is viewed as being uh, morally suspicious because he's under the hypnotism of this foreign seductress. And nobody trusts her, and the fact she eventually uh, has Anthony kill himself by saying that she died, and then kills herself, um, this woman is bad news. All right? this, woman, this woman shows what happened if you don't have that masculine strength of mind that we get with the Stokes. Now, of course, there's no thing as a masculine strength of mind. You have the same virtues whether you're male or female, but the Romans aren't thinking about it. Now, Dido makes her appearance. One, she's a female head of state. 
Two, she's foreign culturally. And three, she is consumed by passion. How do we know? Here's the deal. The most important symbolic element in the Iliad for irrationality is fire. It's associated with destruction. The first fire we're going to see is not here, but rather the burning of Troy. It's being destroyed all right, by, of course, the foolishness of Paris and Helen and all the stupid backstory there. Uh, fire represents uncontrolled emotion. Again, that's part of the stoic outlook that we see here. And when, when emotion is uncontrolled and it's wreaking its destructive havoc on, havoc on the city, your job is to get the hell out. And you bring dad. You don't bring money or other stuff. You show that filial piety because you're not um, avaricious. In fact, you're pious. So dad comes with me. All right. We save him from the fire. We go to Crete. We go uh, where, where things don't work out. Uh, his father dies on the journey. And uh, again, this is the Odyssey. And eventually, in book one, we end up at Carthage. It's ruled by a female. And this female immediately gives in to her passions. She sees Aeneas and is overwhelmed by desire. All right. Remember that romantic love hasn't been invented yet. Um, they're not exchanging love letters. They're exchanging DNA. Well, look, this is how it works. I'm sorry, but that's what we got here. They call it a wedding. It's actually not. It's a hookup. Right? There's nothing surprising about that. Um, but, and again, there's nothing surprising about this. Dido takes this as being a final commitment without actually asking Aeneas in any kind of direct way. Now, you will find that uh, not all men make a direct permanent commitment after having sex. Dido doesn't seem to have caught on to that. And she also, when her husband died, she's a widow, swore that she would not remarry. So she breaks her vow. She's woman so inferior. She's carried off by her passions. And uh, she begins to make plans for their married bliss uh, the deep downside is that they are not married and the result will not be bliss. All right. So she's like Cleopatra. All right. She's the foreign temptress that threatens our hero. All right. We'll come back to her. Notice it's not an accident that when she dies and Aeneas leaves, she's burning too. The burning means the same thing. You're being overcome by passion. Her passion is such that, and her despair is such, and her madness is such, for want of a better word, um, that she climbs to a really to the top of a really high funeral pyre so that Aeneas can see her, kill herself, and then get burned. Um, this is really operatic. Verdi actually wrote an, uh, an opera about Aeneas and Dido, but it's the kind of thing that would work great for an opera because you could actually have her, an aria where she very majestically and full of weeping and sadness, climbs the pyre, <laughs> singing her own death song as she goes up, and then, ah! <laughs> right? So, no, this really lends itself to opera in a big way. I mean, these, I mean, opera's about, in some ways, excessive emotions and stupid stories. <laughs> well, no, if you've ever read the libretto of operas, most of them are ridiculous. The magic flute, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? The uh, abduction from the seraglio, they don't have them in Vienna. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of silly stories, but the music is what redeems it. Um, this is begging to be turned into a novel. <laughs> and in fact, it has been more than once. All right, section two, book two. Here we get the flashback. This is how we fix in Medias race. He tells us about the sack of Troy, saves his dad. And he is doing this out of moral obligation. So here's a guy who doesn't lose his head in situations of danger. All right? He is going to meet his moral obligations even at the danger to his life. And notice he doesn't bring his mom. 
brings his dad. Right? Patrilineal connections are the most important. You are defined, as was in Homer, by who your dad was. Your dad may have a dozen concubines. It doesn't make any difference. That's your dad, so that's who you come from. Okay. Section three, we get the wanderings of Aeneas. And the point here is that he's going to replicate, as you put so nicely in your presentation, um, bouncing around the Mediterranean, which is what Homer did. Right? The gods are still in charge of natural phenomena, which is why when they're at Crete, the gods, instead of just telling them, look, you don't belong at Crete, they send an epidemic, which is you're supposed to figure that out. Notice how backward-looking this conception of nature is compared to Lucretius. Okay? Again, um, I don't think Virgil believes this stuff. I think, it, look, most people that are going to be encounter my story, they believe this stuff, so we got to tell them that. Right. Remember that this is, unlike Homer, this is a written, not an oral epic. A couple of things entailed to that. Number one, it doesn't repeat itself so much because you don't need those memnonic tools. Mm. I mean, in Homer, there's, just, there's only one kind of dawn. That's rosy-fingered dawn and swift-footed Achilles, and, you know, all these epithets. You don't need the epithets if you have a written text. So, yeah, we're going to get uh, <coughs> Aeneas the True, but it doesn't repeat itself all the time the way it does in Homer. There's also the Sortites Virgilium. That's where the old Roman custom, once they had copies of this, of uh, just opening the book rand at random, picking a, a, a point arbitrarily, the way Christians sometimes do with the Bible, and, say, and, and use that to make decisions. It's like a, a Ouija board for the ancient world. Well, actually, I mean, given the way this is written, that's not an impossible thing to do. It's not rational, but um, people can do, do it. Tolle lege, think of Augustine. Okay. So, he has a dream vision. The gods are still making personal appearances, unlike Lucretius. And he has to go from Troy to Rome, but he's going to stop off at Carthage for a little R&R. &R. Okay. Now... Dido is making plans for their future. Aeneas is making plans for his future, which is different from their future. And uh, he takes off. Gotta go, man. Right. Um, this breaks her heart. She doesn't get what she wants. So she has this operatic despair. All right. And she's going to kill herself. Okay. But it's a, incidentally, that's a foreshadowing of Carthage being destroyed by Rome. All right. And she said, when we had sex in the cave, I thought we were married. No. Um, that's actually not getting married. That's just having sex. She says, oh, well. Uh, now, he knows that Dido isn't going to go for this. You know, he's been uh, told by dreams and by the gods that he has to leave at night, so they take off, and uh, you know, it's a hookup and he runs. And Dido is full of rage as well as full of pain of betrayal. She is on fire with lust and anger, all right? And so she's the anti-Stoic ruler, all right? Remember the once that she's been working very hard to have them build Carthage when these guys arrive in book one. But by the time we get to book four, she stopped building things, stopped supervising the construction of the city. Why? Because she's completely taken up with Aeneas. So she ignores her political obligations as a ruler to follow her, per her personal passions, which is exactly what a Stoic doesn't do. Look, it's likely that Aeneas liked Dido. I wouldn't go so far as to say love, but he probably liked her. Um, but he's got a job to do, and he's duty-bound to leave. What that means is that the pursuit of pleasure is not original to Roman culture. It's the pursuit of duty. The will of Jupiter is fate. 
when you find out that Jupiter wants you to found a city in Italy, you gotta go. I mean, you could choose not to, but that would mess up your life and everybody else's. So, we get this melodramatic death on the pyre, and it's so high that Aeneas can see it. And then, in book six, when he makes it to the underworld, she won't talk to him. That's understandable. She's all burned up. All right? But uh, what we're going to see here is the uh, instability, the unpredictability, and the irrationality of women. All right? Roman virtue is almost exclusively masculine. Okay. Question? No, no. Okay. All right. The funeral games for Anchises. This is, of course, stolen from the funeral games for Patroclus. All right. They're in Sicily. It's a year after... It's a year after... the death of Anchises. So they're going to have a bunch of games, and there is that wonderful boxing match. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and remember, back then, boxing matches were, uh, you fought them with, not with gloves, um, because actually, you know that today, when they have boxing matches with gloves, they wear gloves to protect their hands. If you want to protect your head, you put on a headgear. But it's, they're able to actually punch so hard that they'll break the bones in their hand if they don't have boxing gloves on. That's what boxing gloves are for. They don't protect your head. You need something else for that. Okay, back then what they did was, in order to, pre to prevent you from splitting and from cracking your knuckles, and here I don't mean cracking them like that, I mean cracking them like broken open, um, they bind your hands up with very hard, very stiff leather, usually horsehide. Now, the thing here, horsehide is very stiff, very rigid. It also produces fierce cuts on the face and on the body when you hit it because it's very abrasive. So what it means is you have almost no packing for your hands, and you're going to make a bloody mess of your opponent, he's going to do the same with you. So boxing then, all right, was much more brutal, much more ferocious than boxing is now, which is really saying something. All right. Okay. Palinurus dies. What happens if you're the helmsman and you fall asleep? It means you're not a good stoner. And what happens then? You die. Right. But because Aeneas happens to be in the afterworld, in, the, in Hades, um, he says, look, we'll take care of those funeral rites for you so you don't have to um, bounce around here you know, without actually getting into the underworld proper. All right. Yep. One thing that's interesting is that when the church fathers came and read Virgil, they, they look at the passage where it says, uh, where Zeus, or Zeus, Zeus, you know, says, so they can make it to Italy, but one person has to die. There has to be a sacrifice for the many so that they can make it. And we're like, ah, yeah. so we figure it's Jesus. Right, right, yeah. Um, we're going to see an awful lot of that in the course of the year, actually, of course of the two years. Um, pulling Christian rabbits out of non-Christian hats, all right, is an intellectually dubious undertaking, right? Um, yeah, there's other parts from the Gorg Gorgics and other things that Virgil wrote where they talk about a golden child and... Um, the Christians, of course, take that to be an endorsement of Christianity, that somehow God had let him know, but not really let him know what was going on. And this is really about Jesus. Uh, no. No. But on the other hand, uh, the incorporation of the Greco-Roman tradition into Christian Christianity is actually of the greatest significance. Remember, the Christianity starts out as a, a religion of the underclass, the slaves, the dispossessed, the wretched of the earth. And uh, those people were illiterate, oppressed, and not especially cultured, all right? So what we're going to get is uh, intellectual reinforcement of Christianity that gets imported from the Greco-Roman tradition. And of course, that's a dicey thing because the Romans persecute Christians. So it's going to have uh, be a kind of a difficult interaction between Christianity and Rome until we get to the fourth century when first it gets legalized in 313 and then it gets made the official Roman state religion in 384. Now that's really a strange change. It starts out as this persecuted, desperate group of slaves who are uh, looking for some hope in a life of despair 
And eventually we get taught that, or it becomes the official required state religion of Rome. It had to have undergone a great many changes in order to do that, and so did Rome. Finally, we get the hinge of the book. It's, this is the kind of the hinge on which the book swings, which is book six, Aeneas' Journey to Hades. And this is, of course, modeled on, uh, what is it, book nine of the uh, Odyssey? Yeah. Well, it goes to the underworld, has to see his dad. All right. Again, that patrilineal connection. That's his guide. And uh, he sees Dido, but she's too angry to talk to him. Which is actually, I mean, well done. That's a nice understatement. Right? <laughs> no, there's nothing that could have you know, keep up with, I stab myself to death and then watch myself burn as I watch your ship leave. I mean, um, we can't touch that. All right. So she just says, look, I have nothing to say. Or doesn't even say that. <laughs> walks away silently. Um, yeah, that's actually a very clever way of handling that. Um, being a great poet involves knowing what to say, but also when to say it. And there are some times when if you keep your mouth shut and you put it in the right context, you can have tremendous effect. Of those of you who have read of the Sorrows of Young Werther, remember that last line before the last paragraph of Charlotte's dismay and Albert's uh, unhappiness? I will say nothing, right? Because you don't need to say anything. I mean, it's what, you can't help but project the worst kind of meltdown uh, understatement is actually a, a very powerful tool if you are a good enough poet to create a background to it. Right? Knowing what not to say is part of wisdom, too. All right. Anchises gets him the information he needs to go to Rome, but he also shows him the whole parade of Roman greats, right? the uh, Scipio Africanus, and uh, uh, other important figures, but it finally ends up with Augustus saying, Augustus here, he's going to be born soon, probably around the same time you're writing this Virgil, and he's going to be the most important of all the Roman heroes. And everybody thinks he's great, and he thinks, they think he's generous too, and they think he gives money to poets. <laughs> Get the idea, right? I mean, uh, I mean, he's shamelessly sucking up to the boss here. And uh, he makes it work. So this is the, uh, the national epic of Rome, or more precisely, the imperial epic of Rome. And we find out now that Rome has a destiny to rule the world. This is divinely ordained. And that Aeneas' job is to do the work of, Zo of Jupiter and found the most important city in human history. Right. So this is a sort of hymn of praise to political power. Which would be very, which would be very sensible, given that this is the very beginning of the Roman Empire. All right, and political power is what Rome is about. When you deal with Rome historically, which you have to keep in mind, is that even before it moves from republic to empire, Rome is an expansive predatory political organization. They spend their time invading their neighbors, taking their stuff, forcing tribute on them, and enslaving a chunk of them. Remember that all ancient societies are dependent upon slave labor. So, Rome was not a good neighbor. What it did was gobble up everybody that they could find. And that's what Roman history is largely made up of. The acquisition of foreign territory, foreign power, and foreign slaves. And the Romans were smart. 
since they're in the uh, game of political expansion, what they did was something the Greeks didn't think of. They developed the idea of citizenship. And when they conquered a new province, let's say Gaul, which is what's today's France, when they conquered this province, they defeated all military opposition, and they enslaved a percentage, but not the entire population. Remember, you don't want to completely depopulate it because they're not going to be able to send you tribute next year if there's nobody there to do the work. So you're going to take a certain percentage of those captured and enslave them. They'll go back to the slave markets in Rome or in any of the provincial capitals, and they'll be sold off. That money goes into the treasury. Okay. Um, as we are noticing now in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, foreign military adventures are extremely expensive. Right? You have long supply lines, and you've got people that are not producing anything, they're destroying things. All right? That costs a lot. So the Romans make military expansion a self-paying proposition by absorbing slaves, paying for their cost, the cost of their legions then, that way. And then, on the other hand, local elites, uh, the ones that fought against them, likely to be killed, but not necessarily. All right? The local elites that didn't fight against them, plus a few of the ones who actually did that got the Romans' respect, they get offered Roman citizenship. The idea is this. You guys keep the peace here. You've been running society in Gaul since before we came. We have no problem with delegating to you the running of this locality. But here's the deal. You work for us now. All right. Yeah, you'll get a slice of the pie. You can still be the local elite. But we get our tribute, we get our taxes, and we don't, don't make no waves, don't back no losers. Yeah. So they just randomly pick half? They like just, how is it selected? Um, like? Depends on what they need. Often they would get uh, opposing soldiers. If they were spared, they would come back. Okay. Um, farmers or any kind of common people, you know, you take as many as you need, but you also want to balance that with the fact that this needs to be an ongoing operation, so you don't want to take too many. And it's hard to run these societies. You don't know the language well, or you don't know the customs, you don't know when they're lying to you and pulling your leg. Much better, much more effective to get a local elite and say, look, you want to keep your head on your shoulders? Or is how you do this? You work for us now, and you're going to go back to running society the way you used to run society. But we get our slice of the pie at the end of every year, or we will put your head on a stick. Okay. So we offer you guys, you, you elites, Roman citizenship. You actually have rights now, yeah? When we were reading the Republic, you mentioned that some of the characters are essentially citizens and some of them are not. Some of them are what? Citizens. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The citizens are Socrates, Adamantus, and Glaucon. The non-citizens are Cephalus, Polemarchus, and Thrasymachus. That's why they get stuck in the first book and where the real discussion goes on with the, between the citizens. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, Roman, uh, the Greeks were very stingy in extending citizenship. Okay. Right? So the Romans said, well, we got a use for this, yeah. It wasn't military in the way that, or like militaristic tool in the way that the Romans used it? Right. Um, in other words, uh, in order to be an Athenian citizen, you had to be born in Rome, of Ath or in Athens of Athenian parents. All right. Um, the people in Milos, no doubt there was a ruling elite there, but we didn't allow them to become Athenian citizens. But they do that in Rome, right, which is a smart move. That way, you have the local elite with some skin in the game. All right? They have to buy into the Roman regime, otherwise they get their heads cut off. But once they do, they say, look, I want to take care of myself and my family. I have a better deal than the people that were enslaved. I actually owe my life and my existence to Rome. So they begin to identify as Romans. In addition, at the same time, once they take new territory, another tactic they use, and this is, again, very smart on the part of the Romans. When you signed up to become a Roman legionary, right, um, it was either a 20 or 25-year hitch. Right? So you would do that at, say, 18, and if you were still around at 40, roughly then you would get you, because you're, you're not past your fighting prime then. Um, they will uh, 
let you leave. And what they give you as your kind of going away present, they give you land and money. The land they give you is in the place you conquered. So what that means now, we have Roman legionaries whose uh, loyalty to Rome is not open to question. Plus, we got the locals, and they're going to make things hum. In other words, you give this guy land and money, he's going to buy some slaves, he's going to clear it, they're going to start producing stuff there. So this is the, uh, the severance package of Roman legionaries. And what that means is that Rome has a very intelligent plan for pacifying the things they conquer. And it works pretty well. Okay. So, Rome is a predatory military empire. And the result of their activities are, is inevitably to increase the number of slaves. Rome cannot survive without slave labor. Like every ancient civilization, it had to have coerced labor in order to get anything done. All right? uh, the pyramids of Egypt or the Great Wall of China would never have been built, built unless you had labor that was compelled to do this. Um, whether they had slavery in China or in uh, Others uh, or in Egypt um, is dubious. You know, you're not actually owned, but they have ways of coercing big chunks of the underclass to work on monumental projects. Whether they call it slavery or something else, what the idea is, you need massive labor, and it has to be uh, either threatened or persuaded to do these jobs. Right? Um, what the Romans needed was slave labor, first of all, for the galleys. In other words, if you're going to have a Roman navy, and they need one because they're in the middle of the Med, um, those, those galleys get rowed, when there's no good wind, by slaves who have a very short life expectancy. All right? They were chained together on Roman galleys, so if there was a battle and you got rammed, which is the way they usually did their naval battles, uh, the guys, who the rowers, they go down with the ship. It was a powerful incentive for them to row hard. I really got their attention. All right. So galleys. Second of all, uh, mines, particularly Andalusia. In other words, Spain has a lot of easily accessible silver, which is mined by people who are literally worked to death. The average life expectancy of a slave that's assigned to a Silver mine in Spain is about five years. That's the average. So they're going to work you to death. I mean, think about, about Spanish sunshine. It's warm there. Now think about doing heavy labor with axes and shovels, pulling out silver ore. All right. All this is being done on a very limited amount of food and water, and it's cheaper for them just to work the slaves to death and the ones that get out of line to just kill them off because the profits from the silver are so great you can afford to keep on renewing it. The same sort of thing happens, strangely enough, with another very profitable crop, sugar, in the Caribbean. They work the slaves to death there, very different from slavery in the United States. Right. So, you can get sent to the galleys, which is a death sentence. You can get sent to the mines, which is a death sentence. The, second, the third possibility is that you get sent to Latifundia, Latifundia are large grain plantations. Many of them are in Italy, but they're actually spread all through the Med. You become something like an agricultural slave. And that was relatively good because the working conditions were okay because they're limited by the seasons. And food is relatively plentiful. And finally, you could get, you could get turned into a house servant which is what the educated Greeks did. They got turned into house servants, uh, pedagogues, in other words, teachers for the children, particularly the boys. And cultural types, like people, there were no doubt some Greek slaves that had memorized the Iliad and the Odyssey. So you have somebody that could tell the story whenever you happen to want to hear it. If you're rich enough, you can own that too. All right. 
But the key thing here is this, and this is something you have to think about in the context of Roman history. You want to understand the strange connection between Rome and Christianity. First of all, the structure of Catholic Christianity, all right, with the Pope at the top and then the College of Cardinals and the bishops below them, um, that hierarchy um, is derived from the Roman Empire, where the Pope is the emperor, and then you have the same kind of hierarchical structure. All right? Um, that's not an accident. All right? And uh, in addition to that, not only is the structure of the church largely determined by Roman models, but uh, there's an uneasy relationship between Christianity and Rome. It's in many ways antithetical to Rome because the values that Christianity inculcates like uh, compassion, mercy, charity, um, are not the primary Roman values. Right? There may be a place for them, but it's a minor place. Um, for the Christians, what they're doing is essentially saying to the Romans, we value the opposite of what will keep you in, in power. All right? God told us that soon he's going to end the world, and then we're going to get to go to heaven, and we can watch you fry. No, that's a big part of the uh, early, of the patristics. Um, you get to watch the people you don't like being tortured. <laughs> All right, you can see why that appeals to people that are desperate and miserable and uh, hate their oppressors. And it's this complex relationship between Christianity and Rome that is going to become increasingly focused on what's next because Rome kind of passes the baton to Christianity of the West but then Rome falls off but Christianity keeps going All right, and so it's going to be Christianity that brings Greco-Roman culture to Western Europe now you have to remember that the Western European barbarians right you know, the Jutes and the Angles and the Saxons and the Goths and all those guys. Alaric, uh, who is the leader of the Goths, is the first guy to uh, sack Rome, and that's in 410 AD. We're still a long way from that. But the point is this. Those Germanic tribes that had moved into Rome and displaced Rome in Europe, um, when they Christianize, the Christians are not just bringing Jesus and the Bible. They're also bringing the Greco-Roman tradition. Now, it's a limited access to it, but it, even the fact that Christian scripture is written in Greek means that what they're doing is carrying over the Greek philosophical tradition, which is completely unique in the world. There's nothing like it. But in the first line of the Gospel of John where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, the Word is logos. And that means both speech and reason as well as Jesus, which leads to some amazingly fruitful confusion. <laughs> no, I mean, it does. Actually, this is actually a very handy thing. It doesn't immediately make sense. So you've got to kind of work to get these parts, this jigsaw puzzle together. And there's inevitably a little bit of trimming here, slamming it in there, because it doesn't work perfectly, right? Uh, later on, we'll find that Thomas Aquinas has Aristotle said a number of things that Aristotle doesn't say. <laughs> Right, but it's Aristotle, you've got an Aristotle sock puppet saying, I really like Jesus, I just didn't know him. <laughs> right. I believe in angels. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Or, I, I believe that there was a creation, time isn't eternal. Well, actually, I mean, Aristotle makes it. So, the point then is that this term is about the uneasy relationship, it's about the gestation of Christianity and the uneasy relationship between Rome and Christianity. Rome is a kind of bridge culture. Connects ancient Greece, makes it big, and makes it permanent. Remember, the Greeks were too smart for their own good. They bloomed in a way that's unique in the history of the world, but only for about three generations. And then they cut their own throats. The Romans say, look, we're not going to be as brilliant as the Greeks. Nobody's as brilliant as the Greeks. Just as well. When they come to... A, Rome in the middle of the 3rd century BC, or rather when they come to Greece, in other words, once they finish off Carthage in 146, they also want to go and have a look at the rest of the men. And shortly thereafter, after finishing 
the Punic War, they're going to take Egypt and Palestine and Greece. But when, it's a great story. When the Roman legions actually invade Greece, they look around them, and they're absolutely dumbfounded by the stuff they see. They say, well, I mean, imagine getting a first look at the Parthenon. You've heard that they, got some nice, that they have some nice uh, architecture. Well, imagine, remember, the, the Turks haven't used it as a gunpowder uh, magazine yet, so they haven't blown it up yet. Go upside the head of the Turks for doing that. <laughs> no, that's a sin. Forget military stuff. But um, it's largely intact. And the Romans get there and they say, damn, this is amazing. Look at these sculptures. Look at these paintings. Look at this architecture. Have you talked to the Greeks and heard their blasted stories? I mean, who the hell could think up Medea? <laughs> I mean, that's so messed up. Right? Aristophanes is funny. Right? Uh, you know, the Greek culture is just so overwhelming. Like, this is a tiny place. And then they look around at the Greeks and they say, hmm, these people are underwhelming. In other words, the culture is great, but these guys are decadent long past your prime. In other words, the, the expiration of data on Greek culture was a long time ago. Right? When they looked around, they, they, they called the Greeks they met Greculi, which is the diminutive form. It means little Greeks. <laughs> so here we are among the little Greeks. They are capable of showing us the stuff that their great-grandfathers did, and it's damned impressive. But the people we're dealing with now are a joke. All right? Their great-grandfathers were the most cultivated and cultured and able of all human beings. And look at these guys. <clears throat> the fight they put up against the Roman legions is pathetic. You bring them out, we just cut, cut them to pieces. Then we enslave them, and then we realize they're smarter than we are kind of invasion is this? It's unique in the history of the world. There's no other, every, whenever you invade and conquer a culture, usually you denigrate that culture. They're weak, they're useless, they're not good for much. Um, the Romans do that and they say, well, these people are useless. I mean, they're Dracula. But they're great granddads and they, they, they memorize these stories. You get back and you teach my children. That's completely unique in history. And uh, look, the Romans know the good stuff when they see it. And they're um, shameless thieves. Okay. So, they're among the Grecula. Now, I'll get you in a second. Here's something you should think about. 1945, the end of the Second World War, the Americans and the Russians had come together to crush Nazism. They both look around and say, damn, have a look at the member. I mean, with the exception of a brief time in World War I, Americans don't have much access to Europe. But now you've got a whole bunch of GIs in Europe, and you also have a whole bunch of Russian soldiers in Europe, and they both look around and say, these people are really civilized. I mean, if you can find a city, or even a portion of a city that hasn't been bombed flat, check out these cathedrals. Check out the Louvre. Check out the Vatican. I mean, the stuff they have here is mind-bogglingly beautiful. But here's the deal. The Russians and the Americans in 1945 looked around and they were amazed at the quality of the culture and the depth of the culture that they encountered. Very much like the Romans encountering the Greeks. But what the Americans saw among the locals was Greculi and so did the Russians. And the Europeans are incredibly resentful about that. In other words, look, these, the great-great-grandfathers of these people used to run the planet all right, between roughly 1500 and 1900. And then they cut each other's throats because there was no power on Earth that could kill them, but they could kill each other. They bombed each other flat, and then they killed each other's uh, young population, the age of soldiers. And uh, then they had to get their problems solved by outsiders because they, they had completely messed things up. Both the Russians and the Americans look at the people that they find in 1940 and they say, these people are laughably useless. I mean, this is really, these are Greculi. And the Europeans have never forgiven the barbarous Russians or the barbarous Americans from finding out that 
the European powers that had dominated the world for 400 years no longer could. And that's because the blood started to run a little thin. They couldn't quite get the job done. And that's why Europe is in such, has had for a couple of generations now such a powerful resentment of both the Americans and the Russians. But since the Russians lost, that means the world fell into the lap of the Americans. That's the source of European anti-Americanism. It's been around for a long time, but they realized that, look, our grandfathers ran the planet. We are doing our best to hold on to Dien Bien Phu, which is hopeless. Right? So you're going to see many of the same patterns emerge in history. And uh, the Greculi that the Romans encounter uh, become the foundation of their culture. All right? For literature, for art, for architecture, for politics, for philosophy, for science, everything gets stolen. And the Romans safeguard it and carry it over to the next runner in the relay, and that is Christianity. All right, we're at 10 o'clock, unfortunately, but I'll see you on Thursday morning. And then if you want, I'll have a Thursday afternoon if you need to see me. I know I'm not feeling it.